you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Our Bible reading for the day, start in Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 27. Mine was different than yours, sorry. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 21, says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The word of the Lord. There we go. Thanks, Matt. And um, thanks, everyone. This is the transition now where we look at today's issue in the left and right series. And it's Climate change. Now, I'll be completely honest and say that this issue, I think, is in some ways the most difficult of any in our series. And we've got some difficult ones in the past and we've got some difficult ones in the future. And I'll tell you why. Firstly, this is such a difficult issue because the spectrum of views is so wide. Right? On one side, we have um, some people who will say that this is an existential crisis, that we are facing a mass extinction if action is not taken immediately and, 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 uh, and focused in a focused way, then the earth might end in the next 10 to 20 years. And on the other end of the spectrum, we've got some people who, who will passionately believe that this is all one big hoax. It's, it's a... Uh, it's a conspiracy theory that's designed to channel wasted money into unneeded green energy schemes and, and make people more easily con- controllable by creating a climate of fear. Now, I would suspect that all of you in your world have encountered both ends of the spectrum. Is that true? I certainly have. And this is why it gets tricky as a church, because we have both ends of that spectrum here this morning, right? So you're welcome. It's great to have you wherever you fit on that spectrum or wherever you are in the middle. But you can see why it is such a difficult issue, because one end of the spectrum and the other end of that spectrum, in many senses in this issue, seem to have very little in common. That's why it's difficult, number one. Number two, this is so difficult because... Nearly all of the debate hinges on science, right? So as I see the climate change issue, there are three big questions that we're asking when we look at this issue. Number one, is the world warming, right? Number two, 
is this warming, if it's happening, caused by human activity? Or is it a natural cyclic phenomena? Number three, if it is warming and it is caused by humans and it is harmful, can we do anything to stop it? Now, those are three questions, right? And the answer to those three questions will in many ways guide what you think about this political issue of climate change. But can you see my problem? Can you see the problem? Those issues are... I'm not going to turn to the Bible with you this morning and go, I'm going to answer those three issues from the Scriptures because it's not there. So the issue is so difficult for me and us for us as a church because week by week, I hope you come... And you gather because you want to hear from God, authoritatively preached from his word. You want to say, God says this to you in his word. And I hope and pray you get that. Because that's the only authority that I or anybody who stands up here has to preach. Is God's authority delegated, revealed in his word, inspired by his Holy Spirit. The problem though, that I've got now is that how I answer those questions and how you answer those questions will be largely determined by your view of science. I'm not a scientist. I'm very wary of, of, of uh, going boldly into this area where angels fear to tread, perhaps. Going boldly into this area without the expertise or the experience. So I'm, I'm going to tell you something which I think for some of you is going to be a massive relief and for other of you is going to be a great disappointment. And it's this. I'm not going to answer those three questions for you this morning. I'm not. I, I can't. And I don't feel that I should. So this is the only issue in our left and right series where at the end of the day, I hope you might say to me, Andrew, tell me what you really think. Because most of the time, you'll get a pretty good idea what I think, but not this morning. Okay? Now, you might then say, well, why are we bothering to do this issue at all? And I'll say there's two reasons why we do this issue as well, and they're both important. Number one, this issue, if you, if you maybe you hadn't realized this, I'm going to give you some news for you yourself this morning. It's actually a big issue in politics. You know, so, I know you know it's a big issue. I'm joking. It's a big issue in politics. Um, politically, at the last federal election, we know the teal independence. We, we know climate change was a massive issue for many people um, in our political system here in Australia. Not just Australia, around the world. Uh, the BBC commissioned a study that was done, released this year. It was done in 10 different nations talking primarily to people under the age of 25. And this is what the survey results revealed, or a snapshot of them. Um, over half of people who answered that survey in 10 different countries, it was 56%, believed that humanity was doomed. 56% said that human existence on Earth is, is doomed, it's just a matter of time. 75% of those who answered said that they felt sad, afraid, anxious, angry, full of despair, grief, and shame about the issue of climate change. This is a big issue. It's a big issue in our world, and whatever we think and where we land on the spectrum, we need to actually engage, because we live in the world. If we are loving God and loving others, if we are knowing Jesus and making Jesus known, we, do, we don't do that in a vacuum, we do that in a world. This is a big issue. We, we need to look at it as a church, and I'm glad that we are. Second reason, though, we're looking at it, and I think this is the, the bigger one, is that I've said that the Bible is not a scientific textbook. It's not answering all of our, the questions that we might like answered on this issue and on other issues as well. But, this is very important, 
I'm also not saying that the Bible and God's Word doesn't have important things to say to us on the principle surrounding this issue, because it does. The Scripture is silent on those three questions that I began with. You know, is, is, uh, is the world warming? Are humans causing it? And can we do anything to stop it? But it's not silent on the principle surrounding that. So this morning, what I want to do in my, I'm going to go, I'm going to try and go brief, and then I'm going to introduce uh, Mr. Paul Detman to you, uh, and we're going to, we're going to kind of tag team here. Before I do, though, I want, I want to land 100% in Scripture, because I think there is some really important things that God would say to us through His Holy Spirit about the principles surrounding this issue. And I'm, I'm going to ask five, and, and hopefully answer, five questions. And I'm indebted to a mate, another mate of mine, Dr. Tim Johnson, who uh, has done a bit of work on this area, and um, he, I'm drawing heavily from some of his work in what follows. So five questions, and hopefully five answers. Number one, whose world is it? It's easy. It's our world. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. Whose world is it? According to the scriptures, it's God's world. It's his world. Unequivocally in scripture, it is God's world. He made it and it's his. It belongs to him. Now, that's so important for two, because there's two errors, maybe even heresies, that come when we Christians think about the world. And not just we Christians, but the world around us. There's two heresies that come. Number one is a pretty common one out there. It's called, you want to call it the technical term, it's pantheism. Have you heard of that? Pantheism. Pantheism is the belief that God is in the world. Um, the world is divine. Creation is divine. So if you want to experience the divine, you want to experience God, you know, go and hug a tree and you will experience God because God is in the world. You could, it's, it's got elements of Hinduism or Hollywoodism, if you've seen the movie Avatar, um, that kind of idea. But the Bible says, no, 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 it's God's world. But it doesn't mean that God is in the world, right? Or God is the world. It's God's world. He owns it in the same way that an artist would, might paint a beautiful picture. She paints a wonderful painting. Now, she is not the painting, she has created the painting and it's beautiful, but she's not the painting. And in the same way, God makes this world, but he is not in the world in that sense. You can learn a lot about God from the world. Uh, the Psalms say, the heavens declare the glory of God. Night after night, they don't have speech, but, but they proclaim his glory by what is made. But you can't worship God by worshiping his creation. Like, that's the first error that we see, because many people would say that you can, and particularly in the environmental movement. It's, a, it's an error, and when it comes from Christians, it's a heresy. Number two, on the other side, is another ancient heretical and certainly erroneous way of viewing the creation. It's been around a long time. It's called dualism. Heard of dualism? Dualism just means two things. And the dualistic view of the world is that you've got two things. You've got the spirits... And you've got the flesh. You've got the, you've got the you know, immaterial and the material. The, the spiritual is good and it's going to last forever. The material is bad and it's passing away. It's unimportant. So the dualistic view says, no, what really matters is the spiritual. As for all this, it's going to burn. Who cares? It's, 
It's unimportant. It's not even positive. It's negative. Let it burn. Why should we get worried about this? But this view separates out God from his creation in the opposite way that pantheism does. It says that God is withdrawn from his creation and he doesn't care for it. But the Bible says God is involved in his world. Both um, pantheism and dualism are wrong ways of thinking about God's world. It's God, whose world is it? It's God's. Secondly, second question, if it's God's world, what is the purpose of it? Why did God create it? It's a big question. Well, many people would say, there really is no purpose because it's here by random chance. There's been random evolutionary processes and development and you and I are here because of all these random evolutionary chances and it's all about survival of the fittest and this world just happened to exist in this perfect way that it does exist to allow human life. It's all just an accident. There's no real purpose. It takes a lot of faith to believe that, by the way. Genesis 1.27 says this. It says, Matt read it before. So God created man in his own image, In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and then this bit, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves in the earth, or on the earth. Uh, The Bible insists, what's the purpose of the world? The Bible insists that the purpose of the world is to permit and allow human flourishing. You might think that's obvious. It's not obvious. Um, uh, many people would say and view humanity on the face of the world like a, a parasite, you know, living on a tree, you know, sucking the life out of it. It's, humanity are a curse and they're a problem. But the Bible never agrees that. It's, it or never, never promotes that view. And it also doesn't say that we human beings are just one living creature, one living being amongst a whole world of living beings. We are that, of course, aren't we? But the Bible also says that humanity, human beings are distinct. Now, only humanity is created in the image of God. Human beings are distinct from animal life and the creation around us. We're part of it, but, but we're also endowed by God with something different. This world is created for our flourishing. So, um, the Bible here says, right at the very beginning of creation, Human beings are given the task of two, two words, which are kind of, they're great if you live in our world, subdue and dominion, is the words that God uses to describe humanity's interaction with the created order. Subdue, it sounds like you've got to beat it down, and, you know, or dominion, sounds like ruling over something. And, and these words have been very controversial. Some um, opponents of Christianity says, there's your environmental problem straight up. Christians see the world as a, to be dominated and abused and controlled. No wonder we've got such a, all these problems. And, and some Christians have actually have taken those words and say, yeah, yeah, we can, we can do whatever we like because we've got dominion. We've got control. But this, this is actually also to misread the Bible. So uh, Tim Johnson, for example, he puts it like this. He says, Further on in Genesis, we see that human beings are formed out of the same stuff as the creation. Adam is formed by God out of the dust of the ground. We are part of the creation, and we share a kinship with it. We're part of it. We share a kinship with it. And when God places the man Adam in the Garden of Eden, his job is to look after the earth. He's told to work it and to care for it. Not work it, exploit it, and take everything you can from it. 
So what is the purpose of God's world? It's, it's given for human flourishing. Humanity is not a parasite. It's created by, we are created by God to be in that world, and we are given dominion and authority over it. But it's also not the only purpose for which God created his world. Um, I think it's pretty clear from reading this scripture that our God takes delight in his creation, like, like an artist would take delight in a painting. He takes delight in being God in the way that he does his creation. And the Bible speaks about, for example, the, the care that he shows to desert flowers. You know those flowers that grow up in the middle of the desert no human eye ever sees? And they're intricate and beautiful and they last for a day or two and then they're gone. No one ever sees them. You know, God's delight in those weird sea creatures down the bottom of the ocean, which we're now discovering, those weird things that live down there. His delight in all of the vastness of this creation, all of its flora and its fauna, its natural beauty. I think, I think the scripture, went, I mean, Job talks about it in the book of Job when God is speaking about his creation and his, 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 uh, his delight in it. it. It just radiates out. I think God says, this is beautiful. Look at this world and when you do, Give glory to me, because I made it. So I think God delights in his creation. It's not just given to us for our flourishing, which it is. It's also demonstrating God's glory. Fourth question. Um, Or third question, sorry. How should we treat it? So it's God's world. It's created for us. We're given dominion over it. How should we exercise that dominion? How should we treat it? Well, I think uh, maybe a helpful illustration is um, something that happened to me uh, when I was in my 20s. I was living at the time in Washington, D.C., and uh, I was studying there, a bankrupt uh, university student at that time. And I had a friend who, who was, uh, he was a, a wealthy executive, got to know him, uh, interviewed him, and had a friendship. And he, and he happened to have the most beautiful, brand-new, hideously expensive sports car. I think it was a Porsche, I can't remember, but it was very, very impressive. And it was brand new, it was shiny. And he said to me one day, he said, how would you like it? Like permanently? <laughs> no, I, did. I knew that's not what he was saying. He said, how would you like a loan of it while you're in DC? I was like, wow. You trust me, a 24-year-old with your hideously expensive sports car? I'm just off my peas. Uh, but... I didn't say that. I said, yes, thank you. It would be wonderful. And, um, and I remember vividly, you know, cruising around Washington, D.C. in this sports car, you know, with, uh, with the music, the Backstreet Boys blaring. No, it wasn't. That's too far. That would have been Danner if she had it. For me, it definitely wasn't the Backstreet Boys. Um, but, but this sports car, he entrusted me with it. And I could have, the moment I said, see you later, Don, and drove out, you know, I could have redlined that baby, flogged the engine. I could have gone, I think this is a four-wheel drive off-road machine. Let's go. You know, let's take it over some bumps. Let's see what the suspension's like in this baby. Um, I could have even got a hammer out and gone like, yeah, and bashed it in on the jig. I mean, no one would have stopped me. I was driving the car. I had, I had ownership over that car. and I had dominion over it in that moment. Of course I didn't do that. Why? Why wouldn't I do that? Because I respected the one who loaned it to me. It was his car. It was his beautiful sports car. He entrusted me with it to drive it, and I treated it with all the respect and dignity that that baby deserved. And, and, uh, and I did it not just because I was worried that it, you know, I'd, get, I'd break down somewhere on the road if I didn't. I did it because I was, I was friends with the guy who owned it, and I wanted to honour and respect him. 
Now, the, the principle with how we as humans treat creation, I think it's pretty similar. It's God's, he owns it. He's created it for us, it's a blessing. He's given us control and dominion over that, this world. But because of our relationship with God, we humans should treat that beautiful creation the same way that I would treat that sports car. Because of honour and because of the friendship I have with its owner. So, fourth question. What's gone wrong? It's God's world. It's given to us. We should treat it with care and respect. So what has gone wrong? In one sense, it's a single word. Anyone know what that might be? Sin. Yep, sin is what has gone wrong. We did, really. We went wrong. So the Bible speaks in Genesis about the beauty of creation, and then chapter 1 and chapter 2 is amazing, and chapter 3, it talks about humans, beings, our, our forefathers, Adam and Eve, their rebellion against God, which is not just a distant theological principle. This changes everything. This changes your life and my life right now. Instead of that intimate relationship with God, walking in the garden, marveling in his creation, enjoying God as he came to marvel also at his, enjoy his own creation, it became rebellion. And we see not only human interactions and relationships that are damaged, we not only see our relationship with God damaged, we see straight away the relationship with creation is damaged. You see that? God says, now it's going to be sweat. You're going to get your food out of this ground with sweat. There's going to be thorns. There's going to be thistles. The creation itself is now groaning, and it's your fault. You did this, not only to each other and to me, but you did it to my world. And we only have to look around our world and through our history, say whatever you think and wherever you land on the spectrum of climate change as an issue... I think we would all agree that over history, humans have not always done a good job. You've only got to look at parts of our world which are now desert because of exploitative farming practices and, and unwise use of water and resources. You've only got to travel to countries, some countries in the world today where you can't even breathe the air or drink the water to see that we humans have really... And where you land on the spectrum, maybe how, how, how strong a degree you see that may have happened. But I think all of us would theologically agree that, in principle, climate change is, is a possibility, theologically. The principle that maybe our exploitation of God's world in a way that has not been sustainable and well could result in climate change. Maybe, potentially, it could even be a response from a loving God to the way we've redlined his car. So that's what's wrong with it. And it is true that God promises Noah at the end of time. He says seed time and harvest will continue until the very end. This world is incredibly resilient and wonderfully created by God. It bounces back. A lot of things happen, but, but it doesn't mean that we can treat the world and expect that there can be no consequences. That's not true of anything that we're steward with. Whether it's your money, speaking about before, you've got control of your money, but the way you use that money will and does have consequences. You can use it wisely or you can use it foolishly, and both of them have consequences. So, fifth and final question, what hope is there? If creation is marred by sin, if the environment has been drawn into this mess in which we are, what hope is there? Well, there's great hope. 
Because God remains passionately and totally committed to his world. God hasn't handballed it, got someone else's problem, you guys sort it out. God remains intimately involved. And how do we know that? Overwhelmingly, we know that because of the gospel, the good news. And the good news says that Jesus, God's son, Jesus, the, the, the beautiful, uncreated one existing before the creation of the world, everything in the world being created through him, then comes into his world, which is extraordinary. We call it the incarnation. God becomes a man and he comes into our creation, not just into our flesh, but into our world. Uh, Tim Johnson, he puts it like this, it's beautiful. He says, Jesus swims in its waters and walks along its grassy hills. Jesus breathes in the warm summer air, enjoys the fragrance of flowers. Jesus looks up at the vastness of the stars in the night sky. The incarnation of Jesus shows not just God's commitment to mankind, but to creation itself. God becomes a man and comes into our world in the form of Jesus. And when Jesus goes to the cross and he dies, he carries all of our sins, all of our brokenness, including, you know, one, one paragraph, one parenthesis, all the things that we have done, wrongly done to our world, which he's given us to steward. But here's the really good news. Because God's committed to his world, he physically raises Jesus Christ from the dead. Have you thought about the implications of that? Why didn't God just raise Jesus spiritually? He didn't have to raise him physically. Why, why, did, why was Jesus physically raised? Why does he come and, and, Peter, and Jesus says, okay, Pete, give me some fish. And he eats the fish. And they're like, you're not a ghost. No, I'm not a ghost. You want to touch my flesh? What, why is Jesus bodily raised? Didn't have to be. Why is he physically raised? And the answer is, is that God is not in the business of throwing his created stuff in the bin. Right? God could have started again. Done. Finished. Let's just get rid of that body. Jesus is just a spiritual being now. No, God actually doesn't turf his stuff. He brings it to perfection. So, for example, Romans 8, uh, which was read before, 19 to 21, puts it like this. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? We are. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected to it, that's God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The Bible insists that God is going to recreate his world. He's not done with it. He's in the business of recreating it. But you might say, and it's a really good pushback, you might say, hang on, Andrew, but what about 2 Peter 3.10? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Now, hang on, it's going to burn Bible's very clear that everything around us is passing away. So why all this talk about creation care? And the answer is that the world still matters just like our bodies do. So th think about your body and my body. Some of you are teenagers and you think my body is indestructible. 
It's just wonderful. And then some of us are like me, and you realize that my body just will break if I do anything extraordinary to it at the moment. Yeah, and, and we realize that our bodies are passing away, yeah? Um, and sadly, well, the reality of human life is we go to funerals. And one day it'll be our funeral that we go to, in one sense. That's the reality, right? Your body and my body is dying. It's going to either rot or it's going to burn. So you think, well, the bite, well, it's going to rot, it's going to burn. God's done with the bodies. It doesn't really matter how we treat our body now then, does it? Yes, it does. The Bible insists that you, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body matters. So the Bible says, don't sin against your body. Don't sin with your body. Your sexuality, your diet, all of these things are, are, are God. You're, you're a steward of your body. And the New Testament insists that you have to look after your body. And it's going to burn, it's going to rot, yeah, but you look after it now because one day the news is that in, in the twinkling of an eye, this body which is so imperishable will be raised incorruptible. You and I are not going to have some sort of weird dualistic experience in heaven. And that's why some of us think heaven is so boring because we're sitting on this cloud as a spirit, if spirits can do this, playing harps and stuff. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is unashamedly and sometimes confrontingly material. It says that your body, you're going to have that body for all of eternity. Uh-oh, how's that good news? You said the gospel was good news. No, because your body will be raised incorruptible. All of its weaknesses and the things you don't like about it now, maybe, are all going to be washed away. It'll still be your body, but it will be transformed your body will exist for eternity. Now, can you see what I'm saying? If that's true of your body, and it absolutely is in Scripture, come and tell me afterwards that, that your bodies don't matter in the Bible and show me how. Of course they matter. And it's the same with God's world, right? This world is passing away. This world will burn, but it will be recreated. It'll be resurrected. And just as we have an, a, a responsibility to steward our bodies and look after them now in this life, so it is with the world that God has entrusted. We have a responsibility to it, to steward it, to care for it, to treat it with respect and to honor it, to not sin against it or with it, because God will recreate it. It's not done. And that's why creation care, if you like, how we Christians interact with our environment and our world is not a small thing. I'm certainly not saying it is the biggest thing, but I think at the one, we cannot just say it's unimportant how we treat our world because we are given stewardship. It's God's world. He created it for us. Um, we're to steward it. Sin has, has marred that relationship. Jesus has redeemed it. This world will be restored and recreated. It matters. So I reckon that's the quickest ever sermon I've ever done. That, that's a theology. And... Um, if you've got questions in regard to that, send them in. Something that I missed. I mean, it's difficult to, to be tight in this space. But now I'm going to ask up Mr. Paul Detman. Who is this guy? We didn't just find him in the street and went like, uh, here's a chance to, to bring the full guy in. Come in, Paul. Oh, and yeah. any tough questions, now Paul's going to answer for you. But Paul, before um, I turn over to you, uh, two questions. Tell us a bit about yourself and then tell us what you do for a living. Mm. Um, yeah, so Paul... Come, come a bit closer, we can get you in the camera here. Yeah. Boy, I feel like it. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I've been a mate of Andrew's since uh, the 70s. 
1979, our parents met and we uh, spent a lot of time together through the 80s and 90s. Uh, son of a, a sheep farmer from central Victoria, Kyneton. And uh, I did, I, I'll have to hash my notes a bit, but um, I, di- I started, I, I studied agriculture in, uh, in the early 90s and, and intended to sort of go into that space, but followed it up with a master's looking at how farmers value nature and ended up in this sort of crossover between agriculture and, and nature. And so the last 25 years really have been in that space and, and have grown a little business called Cusinia Environmental. A little business? Yeah, a little business. <laughs> well, I was, I was talking to Matt and he said they're a me- small to medium-sized business of 300, so we're definitely a small business <laughs> uh, of about 30 and, uh, and we're working in this, this creation care space um, with a lot of our resources coming from restoration work that comes from tree planting, that comes from, you know, people who want to respond to climate change. So, yeah, very much in this space and have been thinking about it both practically and theologically for, for a long time. That is great, Paul. I think you answered both my questions there. So, so what I've asked Paul to do is share some of his story. Um, you could, I, was, I said environmental testimony is probably the wrong language. Mm-hmm. But, um, but some of, of his story about how you've wrestled with it, some of the thoughts that you've had about someone who's working fully in this area. And then um, both Paul and I and, and with Matt here are going to spend some time taking any questions and trying to, to think this through further. So over to you, brother. Thank you so Thank pleased you, you are. Well, I'd have to say, though, has anyone ever gone overtime on this? Because I'm looking at the run sheet. I think we, has that ever happened here? <laughs> and I feel like it's a bit like a McDonald's drive through Like, I've never been to a church, I've never preached to a church that's got more than one. So, like, the, you know, they're behind us. I'm feeling a bit of pressure. But anyway, thank you, Andrew Grills. One thing I've always wanted to do with Andrew is uh, preach together. Um, we've been friends, like I said, since high school, and we, we've done a lot of stuff together over decades. We once caught a bus from Israel to Egypt, and Andrew, we're in Israel, and Andrew said, this is the best ever deal. We can get to Egypt for 40 bucks, and there's heaps of seats because they've been shooting all the tourists in, in Egypt. And um, Nobody wants to go there anymore, so there's definitely going to be space, and it's really cheap. So we did, and we were walking around Cairo the next day, basically, wondering, wonder why there's no other white guys around here. Um, once we hiked across New Zealand, and I smelled a lot like a sheep um, by the end of it. That was quite a famous little uh, escapade we had together. And I'm sure this has come up in the sermon at some point. Once, at the very spur of the moment, we uh, went treasure hunting in the Rocky Mountains, um, so we've done a lot of stuff together, but we've never preached together, and I've been looking forward to it since a month ago when Andrew asked me to, to join him here. I've given a bit of context to who I am. Um, I went to uni, I studied agriculture, I started a business um, called Cusinia, and we look to, I mean, I guess our goal is to see 30% of landscapes um, being managed and, and intentionally um, preserved for nature. We've done about 100 projects, um, we've, we've protected, purchased about 20,000 hectares and we're a team of about 30. We just recently heard, um, this is like our big, our big exciting news um, for this year, that the state government's actually initiated this program called Bush Bank and it's a $30 million state government investment and we've been the successful tenderer for that work. So we've got our work cut out for us over the next five years to restore 20,000 hectares, 50,000 acres, 
which is, I think the Premier said like 10,000 or 100,000 MCGs or something. It was, it was, it was, it's a lot. Over the time, I've worked with um, uh, Tony Renato. Many of you might have heard of him in, in Ethiopia, and um, he's just written a book called The Forest Maker. So, been in this space thinking about it for a long time. Um, I feel like I don't really want to jump into the theological, because Andrew already has, and that was really beautifully uh, unpacked. And I, but I thought I'd just share a little bit of my story and a few of the guideposts on the way that have landed me where I've landed, and then a little bit of what we can do about it. Um, there's probably hundreds of things I could go to, um, but I want to just bring three things that sort of make sense to me. And, um, and, and I feel like this is a little bit of a... a an extension of what Andrew said, so I hope it doesn't take away from the landing that he's, he's created. But firstly, in creation, God does this thing, that, and he creates. And what he does say about each part of the creation, um, the plants, the animals, the land, the energy that sustains the creation, he said it was good. And he never said this about Parliament. He never said this about the economy. He never said it about capitalism or communism or any political party. But he did say it about the, the environment. He said it about the creation. When I wrote my masters, that was the piece that I had in the introduction, um, just just underlining the fact that God said that it was good. And this should give every Christian more than any other, I reckon, more than any other part of society. It's it's us Christians who should be paused and should really think deeply about that. This is important. God loves the natural world. The second thing that I want to just land on is immediately after the creation and before the fall, we've got this picture of God walking with Adam in the garden. What was the garden? It was nature. So there's this sacred relationship between God and man when everything was right. And it was embedded in nature. This is humanity living as the way it was meant to be. And then the fall happened and it broke. And I think we've, but I think we've still got hints of that magical God-breathed perfection when we're immersed in nature. And I think we all can resonate with that. Like an echo of something that goes back and resonates to something before the fall. God created nature to be our home. And it's sacred because he made it. And thirdly, John 3.16, the the most quoted verse of the Bible says, uh, for God so loved the world. And and the the, the word for world, and I'm not a Greek scholar and Andrew is, so maybe at the second iteration of this sermon he'll pick me up on it, but is, is, is a word called cosmon, which is the same word for cosmos, which means the universe. For God so loved the universe, the entire creation. Not just the people, but the whole thing. We're not removed from creation. We are loved in creation. God loves it. He yearns for it to be made right. And it was right when he made it, and it will be right in the end. And this is the extension of Genesis into into the New Testament in John 3.16. And I believe the relationship with nature is is one of the three fundamental relationships that God has given us. The, The relationship people to have with God, the relationship people have with others, and the relationship people have with the rest of creation. So when it comes to practical things, 
and leaning into climate change, as Andrew said I might be able to do. Um, I think I'll share some guideposts more than absolutes as well. Um, C.S. Lewis, who uh, no sermon is complete, I think, without a C.S. Lewis quote. So C.S. Lewis said, the opposite of a lie is not the truth, but it's another lie. And sometimes I think we seem to steer away so far from one lie that we end up erring in, in the other one. And I reckon this is very true in this area of creation, care, and climate change. The first lie is that, as Andrew said, creation is to be worshipped. And I see and work with people who have this view all the time. Um, people who worship creation sometimes hate God and sometimes even hate other people in that worship of creation. But nature, despite the common myth, is actually not our mother. G.K. Chesterton famously said, uh, nature is our sister, for we both have the same father. And I think that's a much better way to think about, about creation. A sister to be loved, cherished, cared for. But the opposite of the lie that creation is to be worshipped is another lie. And, as we, and we can steer into this lie because we don't want to be like the people that we know we disagree with, the people who've, quote-unquote, got it wrong. And that is that creation has no value, um, that God doesn't care about it. He wants it to burn anyway. And this goes both ways, this, this error, the, the, the problem of one lie, the opposite being the other lie. This misunderstands the key element of John 3.16, that creation is valuable. It's a reflection of the artistry and heart of God. And it also misunderstands Romans 8.22, that creation also yearns for the day when it will be liberated by God. So how do we bring these things practically into practice? How do we care for creation? How do we think about climate change? But not just climate change. That's the, the tip of the iceberg and arguably the most controversial part of the iceberg. How do we think about biodiversity loss? How do we think about nutrient contamination of waterways? How do we think of the overfishing of our oceans? of erosion, of salinity, all these practical creation-embedded problems. I think there's a six-part process, and it's really simple, and this is the take-home from me. The first thing we should do is pray. We should take time to reflect on this. We were created by God as part of nature. Um, we're also separate from it as well. So pray about this. Ask God what this means for you in your life. This is step one. Take out your phone. This is the time I'd say, take out your phone. Think about a time when you could go and spend time in nature deliberately to ask God how you should respond to this. Calendarize it. Stick it in your diary. Do this. That's the first thing. The second thing is act with integrity. We do this to honor God, because what he thinks is good, we should think is good too. So this means actually doing some of the things that the people that we might think we disagree with do. People who worship, um, people who worship creation get, often get this bit right, even though they might miss the context for why. Just because they get some parts wrong doesn't make the whole thing wrong. Recycle well, use less energy, consider the impact of the products you buy, Seek to live more simply. Maybe buy green energy. Maybe put solar on your roof. Maybe drive less. Maybe fly less. This is, this is not all consuming. This doesn't mean this is what you become, but it should become part of our life. In the same way, maybe realising you're allergic to glucose or lactose or something, it changes your life, but it doesn't change who you are. 
Let's let our relationship with God and creation lead to many small changes as we honour him in that way. The third thing is we need to invest with integrity. Um, and this is really important. This is one that often gets, gets lost. Be thoughtful and deliberate about where your money, especially your superannuation, is working. This pertains to the way we honour God through honouring human rights as well as through honouring nature. So it's not just a one-dimensional thing. Investments are like acid, and I tried to think of a good analogy where I'd use acid for some rightful purpose, but I don't know much about using acid. But if I had a good reason and I put acid on something, acid just works while I'm not even looking. It, it just does its thing. So if you put acid on the wrong thing, actually it still works and it wrecks stuff. If we put our investments, if we put our capital, our superannuation into the wrong things, it still works. If we are investing in profitable, dodgy arms manufacturers, we'll create more wars. If we invest in dodgy, profitable casinos, there'll be more gambling problems. Where we invest, and especially where we invest our super, will create the world that our children live in. So make sure that is working in a way that honours God. Thirdly, uh, sorry, fourthly, change your system. We don't all have agency everywhere. And I think one of the um, anxieties we can feel is that we can't fix it. We can't fix it. We don't have agency everywhere. But we do have agency somewhere. I'm a landscape restoration person. I can change my sector in a big or little way. It starts off in a little way. It grows into a bigger way. Think about where you have agency, where you have real impact places you work, the places you volunteer, the boards you might serve on. You can't do everything, but there are places that you can do a lot. And do this while demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit. I read, I read a, well, I read parts of a great book recently called Confronting Justice Without Compromising Truth. And we need to bring these things that we do along with the fruit of the Spirit. We need to do this with love, with joy, with peace, with patience, with kindness, um, we need to do it in a way that fully honours God, along with the steadfast determination of, of Nehemiah. Fifthly, we need to pray for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that, we say that, and we need to live in the tension that God, the kingdom of God is both here in Jesus and his spirit within us, but it's also still coming, and we wait in eager expectation for the restoration of all things, while we work toward them, while we do stuff. And finally, this is the, the, the joy piece in it. This is the dessert at the end. Commit to enjoying nature. It's a true gift from God. In the backyard, in the park, at the beach, nature, nature is our home. We were created for it. We were crea it was created for us. Give thanks as you do. Let your whole being overflow with gratitude for the, to God for that beautiful gift he has given and live in that joy. There's my six points. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.